It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. That's from Tale of Two Cities, Charles Dickens' famous novel that kind of happens in a tumultuous time in history where it's based on the French Revolution uh, in London and Paris. That's kind of the backdrop of the story. And so that describes that book, that novel, obviously very well. I mean, he would obviously know how to start his own book. Uh, but it also, I think, describes the church in the book of Acts. Because as we've already seen and will continue to see throughout the coming months, uh, is there are great things happening in the church in the book of Acts. The Holy Spirit's moving. People are getting healed. People are getting saved. The church is growing. But as we've already seen and will continue to see, there is great opposition that just will not stop. Relentless opposition, relentless uh, attack against the church, obstacles, uh, challenges, even as we'll see today, even within the church that arise that can cause things to be uh, difficult for them. Changes, as we'll see in a few weeks, that they sort of have to make to adjust uh, as the church grows and develops. So all at the same time, it's the best of times and the worst of times. And I think that also can describe your life. Sometimes within the same week, you have the highest of highs and then the lowest of lows. Sometimes in the same day, you experience high highs and then something happens in the middle of your day that just ruins the rest of your day or the rest of your week, maybe even longer. So we can identify with this line on several different levels here. And so that's my hope uh, in this summer series as we continue our study in Acts that we will see the challenges that the church faced in the best of times and the worst of times. And we'll see, hopefully, what they did to navigate those times that we can then apply to our lives as we navigate the same thing, as we navigate the high highs and the low lows, the ups and the downs that kind of can come at, at a moment's notice, that we can live in the best of times and the worst of times as we see what the church did and then apply those things. And the opening week of this series perfectly encapsulates this idea of the best of times and the worst of times being completely intertwined. And today we're going to talk about what I think is probably the weirdest story in the New Testament. There are a few weird stories in the New Testament. There are some that we even look at later in Acts. But this one today is really up there, I think, for the Blue Ribbon Award for probably the weirdest story in the New Testament. We're going to cover quite a bit of... of uh, stuff today, not material so much, but just ground. We're going to finish Acts chapter 4 and get through most of Acts chapter 5 just today and looking at kind of a major story there in the middle. So I want to start in Acts chapter 5 verse 1 and we're going to start the weirdest story in the New Testament and then we'll uh, see what comes of that and what we can learn from that today. So here we go, Acts chapter 5 verse 1. But there was a certain man named Ananias who with his wife Sapphira sold some property he brought part of the money to the apostles, claiming it was the full amount. With his wife's consent, he kept the rest. Then Peter said, Ananias, why have you let Satan fill your heart? You lied to the Holy Spirit, and you kept some of the money for yourself. The property was yours to sell or not sell as you wished. And after selling it, the money was also yours to give away. How could you do a thing like this? You weren't lying to us, but to God. As soon as Ananias heard these words, he fell to the floor and died. Everyone who heard about it was terrified. Then some young men got up, wrapped him in a sheet, and took him out and buried him. I told you the story was weird, guys. I warned you. If you have never heard this, buckle up. It gets even weirder in just a second. This is a strange story. In many ways, it's an awkward thing to read. And in many ways, it might be an awkward thing to preach, but we're going to do it anyway, all right? 
might be confusing. This account might lead to some questions like, why would this happen? What's going on here? Maybe a question you might have is, if, if Acts is a highlight reel of the first century church, why would Luke include this story in there? Why would he feel the, ne- the need to include this crazy story? I will say off the bat, this is not a sermon on money, so you can relax, okay? This is not about tithing or giving. It may apply in certain ways, but that's not the point of what we're going to talk about today. It's actually bigger and larger uh, than that. And we'll look at a few things to help hopefully give us some insight into the purpose behind this, the meaning behind this, even maybe application behind this crazy, weird story. But there's actually act two to this story. We're only halfway through this story. So let's read the rest of it, and then we'll get into it a little bit. Acts chapter 5, pick it up at verse number 7. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, was this the price you and your husband received for your land? Yes, she replied, that was the price. And Peter said, how could the two of you even think of conspiring to test the spirit of the Lord like this? The young men who buried your husband are just outside the door, and they will carry you out too. Instantly, she fell to the floor and died. When the young men came in and saw that she was dead, they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear gripped the entire church and everyone else who heard what had happened. Yeah, I'll say, right? Great fear. That makes sense. I will say, though, God, you can't say God's not a romantic, At least this couple had neighboring plots, okay? They were buried next to each other. God has a romantic sense of humor, if you will, right? This is a strange, weird story that probably raises a ton of questions. So what I want us to do today is as we work through this and the context before and after it, I think we can learn three things about God today that will help us understand this story and maybe understand God and our life of faith a little bit better as well. So three things I think we can, this story will teach us about God. Here's the first thing we can learn from, about God from this story. Number one, God never acts arbitrarily. God never acts arbitrarily. Even from the very beginning, even before the beginning, God has always had a plan and a purpose and a design. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created. He had a design behind creation. It's not only, and when you read it, there's an order to it, right? Day one is this, day two is this, day three, day four, day five, day six. There's an order to the order of creation, but even in creation, we know that there is order within it. We can look at the the way that God designed time to work in a certain way. There's order, there's design. It's not random or arbitrary how God made the universe. Uh, There are seasons that we we can, you know, kind of know how things work, even how just animal biology works. There's purpose. There's design to everything that God made. And everything that God does, even beyond that, has a motive, has a reason, has a purpose and a design. God never acts arbitrarily in anything that he does. And God's people, Old Testament and even here in the church, knew this. They believed this, I think, a lot more than probably we do. They believed in the ultimate, complete sovereignty of God. They believe that, I think, again, a lot more than we do, in his ultimate control, in his perfect will. And I think one thing that this story does in a strange way is it sort of debunks the myth that there's an Old Testament God and a New Testament God. This story shows he's the same. He's consistent. He's not arbitrary. It's not like zero AD came along and God's like, I'm just going to be totally different now. 
I'm just going to totally change how I think and how I behave and how I act and how I move. I'm just going to totally be a totally different God now. Like, we sometimes will see that, you know, Old Testament God is angry and violent. New Testament God is loving and soft. But this shows he's the same. He's not arbitrary. He doesn't change. He doesn't base his, things off, his ideas off of a whim or a knee-jerk reaction. We also see that God doesn't just pick on people. There's not like a voodoo doll room in heaven, okay, where God decides, hmm, who's displeased me today? <laughs> Stephen has displeased me. Boom, ah, he knows when my back goes out. That's not, how, that's not how any of this works. That's not what's going on in Acts chapter 5. God doesn't take these two dolls off the shelf and just, you know, stomp on them and then they fall down and die. That's not what's happening here. God doesn't look to inflict pain or suffering on people. He doesn't take pleasure in the pain and suffering of his creation. That wouldn't make any logical sense. Another thing here, when I was studying this week, it was funny, you know, there are some people that want to say, well, Peter, we don't want to blame God for killing these people, so Peter must have done it. You know, it's like Peter pointed his finger at them and said, how dare you? And he falls down dead, and Peter's like, whoa, <laughs> you know. I mean, so let's try that again. Three hours later, his wife comes in, how could you? And then she falls down dead, and he's like, whoa. I could just imagine him setting up cans in the backyard on the fence post, going, how dare you? And seeing if the you know, thing falls over and points at that can and see if it, like, practicing, you know. So Peter didn't kill these people. Um, I, I don't necessarily want to say that God killed them, but we'll get to that more in a minute. I think another thing that this shows us in the consistency of God is that the people in this story are not just random people. They're not randos. By all accounts, based on the context that we'll get to here in a few moments, these are believers. These are church members who instantly die after they lied to the Holy Spirit. Which if you go back to the idea of God's sovereignty, these people believed that to the core of who they were. So although in the moment it says that great fear gripped the church and the people, yeah, in that moment, that's going to make even the this most staunch believer a little shaky, not really maybe for the reasons that we think, right? Not because, oh, God's, you know, out to get me, but, you know, it's there's, okay, is there something that I need to figure out so I'm not next? It's one of those things. And this is odd to us. It's kind of foreign to us to think of God in those terms. To the, the audience here, it might seem weird or maybe even harsh, but it kind of fits with who they believe God to be. He's sovereign. If he did, you know, do these people in, then he has a will and a reason for it. They believe that, which is a weird, that's a big leap, I think, for us, but that's not that big surprise ultimately for them. Even Peter, who's here in this story, obviously, in his letter, 1 Peter, he writes this, 1 Peter 4, 17. Peter says, for the time has come for judgment, and it must begin with who? God's household. And if judgment begins with us, what terrible fate awaits those who have never obeyed God's good news? So even this might seem strange or odd that this happened, that they lied to the Holy Spirit and then they suddenly died. But Peter would say judgment starts with God's people. He's, he's eventually going to judge those apart from him, but not yet. That's later on. He's, he's in the process of judging his people now, consistently, not arbitrarily, but consistently. This even goes back to Proverbs 3, verse 12 in the Old Testament. For the Lord corrects those he loves, just as a father corrects a child in whom he delights. So even if you were to say, clearly, if your opinion is, obviously this was a judgment from God, obviously he killed them in some way, if their deaths were judgment from God, or even if someone were to see it that way, it might seem harsh, but you can't argue that it's inconsistent with God's sovereignty. 
that God does what he pleases. He brings to life, and he can end that life. It's like, you know, you're, if you're a parent, you probably said, I brought you into this world, and I can take you out. You know, it's like, God, God's got, got, that's where that came from. You know, it's Proverbs 3, verse 12. Um, and here's the other part of this, I think, that we have to just be okay with, okay? When we read the Bible, some things that we read, we just can't understand. Some things that we read, they just do not make sense. And some things we will never know. Like you could read every commentary on the book of Acts and you're going to not quite know exactly why certain things happen or exactly why they happen the way they happened or in the, in the timing of which they happen. It's the same for your life. You can't always know why everything happened or when it didn't, why it didn't happen then or why it took so long for this thing to come about or why God didn't answer that prayer that I was praying. We, there are just certain things that we cannot know that are unknowable. And this is, I think, sometimes one of those things. What we can know is however you want to describe or uh, talk about this account, however you want to try to explain it, we know that God never acts arbitrarily. So it's not just in this case he got really angry and just decided to kill people for no reason. That's not God's character. That's not who he is. We know that he doesn't lash out in stress. I've had enough of you people. You know, we just know that's not God's character. So we, don't, we can't assume that in this story either because we know that God always has a purpose and a plan and there's always order. So we can trust God. Even when we don't understand God or what he's doing or what he didn't do, we can trust that God never acts arbitrarily. That, that should be a comfort to us, even in this weird story here. Here's the second thing I think that we can learn uh, from this story about God, and that is God has expectations of his people. Remember, Ananias and Sapphira, as far as we can tell, are believers, they're church members, they're followers of Jesus to some degree, at least. And so God may have called you to follow him, God may have chosen you to follow him, but he never has coerced you to do so. You're not forced into this relationship with him. We, we willingly, lovingly engage in a relationship with God through his son, Jesus. So uh, God wants a relationship with you, but he's never going to force that on you. He's never going to twist your arm to follow him. He's never going to, you know, put the pressure on, put the foot on your throat to make you do what he wants you to do. If you're a follower of Jesus, you've entered this covenant or agreement with God. You've entered it willingly. And what that means, however, is this expectation that we'll talk about. Is that, yes, we in this covenant expect or hope that God will do what he says he will do, but it works both ways, just like in any relationship, any covenant, any agreement. The terms and conditions go two ways. So it's not just that I want or expect God to perform, that he expects me then to perform my end of this agreement. Now, the early church had a unique way of life, and it, even when you read extra-biblical uh, literature from the first, second, third century, uh, people who are outside the church noticed one distinct factor about the church in the, in the first two or three centuries, and that was their extreme generosity, their extreme generosity. But even as Peter says, and we'll talk about it here in a second, the extreme generosity designed in the church was never forced or coerced, or even, it, it was an expectation to some degree, but it was never a threat. But I want to look at an example as we go up to Acts chapter 4, just, just in front of what we just read, uh, to give an example of this extreme generosity that expressed who the church was. This is Acts 4, 36 and 37. For instance, there was Joseph, 
the one the apostles nicknamed Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. We'll talk much more about him a few months from now because he actually partners with Paul in his first missionary journey, Barnabas. He was from the tribe of Levi, so he's Jewish, and came from the island of Cyprus. He sold a field he owned and brought the money to the apostles. That sounds very similar to Acts chapter 5, but he is not on the floor dead like they are. If you could sum up this story in Acts 5 in three words, it's, it's these three words. Pride, lied, died. Okay, that's a three-word summary of this story in Acts 5. Pride, lied, died. When you go back up to Acts chapter 4 and you see the extreme generosity of Barnabas. He sold a piece of property and then he gave the entire proceeds to the church. No one asked him to sell his property. No one forced him to give one cent to the church. He decided, because I can do this and the church needs it, I'm going to willingly give this generous offering to the church. Ananias and Sapphira see the attention this gets him. He gets his own nickname from the apostles because of this. Son of encouragement. They see, man, Barnabas, he's really gone up the ladder here in the church. Like he's really advancing. He's getting a lot of attention. He's getting some clout. He's, he's like getting in the inner circle. Hey, you know what? We have property that we can sell. We could maybe get some of that attention too. So the motive was the issue for this couple. Not so much even what they did, that is a problem, but the motive behind it, that's what happened. Peter tells them when he confronts them, you lied, and they did. He says, you lied to God, and they did. But the key word that he uses when he talks to Sapphira later on, he says, you conspired against the Holy Spirit. That was the problem. They didn't just fib. They didn't just mess up. They didn't just, oh, whoops, you know, we you know, just, uh, uh, we didn't carry the one, you know. It was like, no, no, this was a plot, this was a plan to defraud the church. And then they lied about it when they were confronted after the fact. We'll talk more about that, that process here in a little bit. But Peter reminds them, the point, what God expects is not your money, it's your heart. It's not, it's not like you think that we're impressed with the amount of money that he gave. No, it's, it's his generous spirit that we love. And in an effort to fake that, they had the opposite effect. They weren't generous. They were greedy. They were selfish. They were prideful. We want attention. We want a pat on the back. We want our, our name, you know, on the, on the plaque at the entrance of this new temple because we helped to build this with the land that we saw. They were in it for them. So it, it wasn't really about the money. It was about their heart. It was a deeper issue for them. It was their character. Really, their issue is really the simple word hypocrisy. That was the root sin of this entire ordeal with them, hypocrisy. And if you look at the word hypocrite in the Greek, it actually just means an actor or someone who plays a part. So in ancient uh, Greek dramas, the characters would wear different masks and they would disguise their voice to match that character. So you might have one person doing three different parts in this one play. They're going to have a different mask for every part and do a different voice for every part so you can distinguish the characters. That's where the word hypocrite comes from. It's someone who plays a part, someone who is phony, someone who is fake, someone who disguises themselves. And that was the main issue with Ananias and Sapphira. They were pretending. They were playing a part. They weren't the real deal. And even if you look, I don't know if you are familiar with Dante's Inferno or the Divine Comedy. I read that for the first time a few years ago. If you do, uh, come to me for advice first. 
like the, the version you read is important, how you read it's important. Like I've never read something so confusing in my entire life. If you've read that and you made it through, God bless you for that, okay? But this is basically a fictional middle, you know, mid-ages journey through the afterlife that Dante goes through. And he travels first through hell. And if you're familiar with that, there are, are nine circles that go down to the very pit of hell. So the reason I'm saying this is because all the way down at the eighth circle is where the hypocrites are in Dante's journey through hell. All the way to the near pit itself is where the hypocrites are. And they're about halfway down the eighth circle of hell. And their punishment is, I think, pretty interesting. It's, it's pretty genius of Dante to think of it in this way. So the people in this section who are the hypocrites in the eighth circle of hell, they are wearing these beautiful-looking robes. They're just walking, wandering around this pit, okay? And the robes look beautiful and ornate and lovely. However, they weigh a ton. They, they, they're like iron. So the punishment for hypocrites, according to, again, this is fictitious. This is, not, this is not the Bible, but it's an interesting way to think of it. The way that Dante sees the punishment for hypocrites in hell is to experience eternal hypocrisy. The robe that they're wearing looks beautiful on the surface. Oh, it's beautiful, ornate, but it's weighing them down. It's not what it appears to be. It's a weight. It's a burden. It's, it's a curse, not a blessing. So the punishment uh, was to experience that sort of hypocrisy. Now, we talk about God's expectations of his people, and I've kind of let the cat out of the bag a little bit, but God does want certain things of his people, just, just to name a few. Purity, high on the list. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says the pure in heart will receive the kingdom of God. God does want holiness from his people. Hebrews 12, 14 says that without holiness, no one can see God. That's pretty top on his list there. Yeah, he wants that. God wants people to be people of love. Jesus says that that's the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and your neighbor as yourself. God, God wants us to live that way, yes. God does want generosity from his people. It was the separating hallmark from the early church, and I think it could be the same today. But really, what God wants, what he expects, is not so much those things, but that while we pursue those good things, we don't become fake in that pursuit. That in pursuing holiness, I don't become fake in that effort. That in, in trying to pursue purity, I don't make that the goal. I make becoming more like God the goal. Becoming more like Christ the goal, not the purity itself. And we'll talk about the dangers of that here in just a second. It's not so much that God just talks about generosity and giving because he wants our money. It's that he wants our heart, and he knows that that's where that all starts from. That's what generosity stems from is, is really our heart. So in, in our pursuit of these things that God wants, what he expects is that we remain real, authentic, humble, honest in that pursuit of those things. That's the expectation. So I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm saying. The, the things that are good that we should pursue is not so much the expectation of God, it's who we are, who we become while we pursue those good things. That's the expectation that God has. Paul says it this way in Philippians 2 verse 3, don't be selfish, don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Once again, purity is good, but it needs to be done in humility. Holiness is good, but it must be pursued authentically. Love is good, but it can't be fake. Generosity is good, but it must be shown or given honestly. And so if you consider yourself a 
child of God, this is the balance that we have to live in. Is that I'm, again, I'm entering this relationship willingly. I want to receive these benefits from God, and so I want to embrace this responsibility of just being real and genuine and not fake. Because the opposite of that is really spiritual hypocrisy, which is expecting the benefits without embracing the responsibility. That's the problem with Ananias and Sapphira here in Acts 5. Expecting the benefits without embracing the responsibility, it doesn't work. So that's for children of God, but also think about this in your role as God's child, is also as the church, we're called the bride of Christ. So you think about your children, if they're, if they're not married yet, you want them to marry the right kind of person, don't you? You want them to find the, a good person. And so you don't want that person to be fake or two-faced. You don't want them to be deceptive or manipulative. That's what God wants for his bride. He wants real people. He wants real followers. He wants people who aren't deceptive or manipulative or fake. And so I know that this story is weird, but let's make it even weirder for just a second, okay? Here's a good question to ask to kind of see if we're more like Ananias and Sapphira or if we're not. Ask this question. Am I marriage material? Now, I don't mean, especially if you're married, hopefully you are for your spouse and them alone, right? But I'm talking about spiritually. If we're the bride of Christ, ask yourself, am I marriage material? So we'll use the same several things we've been talking about to illustrate this idea. Am I loving, really, or do I just talk a good game? Am I pursuing purity out of a love for God or so I can look good to other people about how pure I am? Do I live a life of holiness because it's about me and God or so I can look down upon how holy others are not? We can get into that very quickly. This story illustrates how quickly and easily we can do that. Am I truly generous or am I just selectively selfish? Like, God, I'm going to say I'm going to give you everything, but this 30% of my life, you can't touch. Or this area of my life is off limits for you. Am I generous or am I selectively selfish? So we want to ask, am I marriage material? Am I loving? Just talk a good game. Is my pursuit of purity and holiness about me or is it about how I look? And am I truly generous or selectively selfish? I mean, I, I know that we want to be the kind of people who live the way that God desires us to live. We don't want to be fake. We don't want to be phony. We don't want to chase after the wrong things or do th the right things for the wrong reasons. And this message is not meant to be a guilt trip, so hopefully you're not hearing that or sensing that. Um, it's not about perfection or performance. It's actually the opposite of that. It's about honesty and authenticity. It's about I want to follow Jesus because he's worthy of being followed, not because of how it's going to make me look. I want to live a life of faith for the right reasons and do what God desires for him, not to benefit me. I want to be honest about even my shortcomings. Again, when they're, when they're confronted about their sin, they still deny their sin. They hide their sin. They excuse their sin. They, they say, oh yeah, this was the full price and I can show you the paperwork, it's at home, but they didn't have time because they were already dead, right? So I want to be honest even about my own shortcomings, not deny them, not excuse them, not try to hide them. That's part of being an authentic follower of Jesus. I want to be okay with not always getting it right. Because that's, that's what a hypocrite does. That's what a fake person does. They always are right all the time. They always have it right. They never get it wrong. They never make a mistake. And everyone knows that's baloney. No one can live that way. And so that's where we get into trouble is if we try to be someone that we're not or pretend to be something that we cannot be, 
I want to be okay with having more questions than answers. It's okay to say, I don't know on that one. Or that's confusing to me too. I don't have to, even for me, right? I don't, I don't have all the answers, guys, so I'm sorry to disappoint you, <laughs> but I'm a human just like you. And so I have to be okay with that. Okay, that, that one was for me personally, okay? I circled that one for me. Whatever other, whatever other expectations God may have or things that he wants us to do or ways that he wants us to live, again, the real expectation of God for people is to not become fake along the way, to remain an authentic follower every step of the way, to not give in to these lies and become hypocritical in our life of faith. And you might say, well, why is that important? Why does God care? And it really comes down to the third thing here we learned about God for just a few minutes, and that is this. God knows our lives have a ripple effect. For good or for bad, for better or for worse, your life has a ripple effect. It just does. What's interesting is how, how really I think we can view this episode in Acts 5. What this is, is it's actually an attack from Satan onto the church. Now, he, yes, these are two Christians. These are two people who are members of the church, but Satan is them to try to attack from the inside see the problem is for so long what was that a golf ball cool it's my lucky day were you gonna throw golf balls at me wow am i preaching too long already there you go watch out it's dangerous around here you got to watch out for those golf balls where was i oh so this is an attack from satan from the inside so as we've already seen so far, and we'll continue to see, attacks from the outside come all the time, from every direction. And they would kind of expect that, but so far they haven't worked. The church is still growing, miracles are still happening, people are getting saved and healed, right? It's still happening. So now Satan's trying to work from the inside. Friendly fire. And we know this because look at what Peter again says in Acts 5 verse 3. Then Peter said, Ananias, why have you let Satan fill your heart? You lied to the Holy Spirit, and you kept some of the money for yourself. This is very similar language to Judas, who betrayed Jesus a few months earlier. Luke 22, 3 and 4. Then Satan entered into Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve disciples, and he went to the leading priests and captains of the temple guard to discuss the best way to betray Jesus to them. The same language here, Luke wrote Luke and Acts, so we're using the same idea, the same language, the same thought process. If Satan can't attack from the outside, he will try to attack from the inside. And that's what we see in both of these cases. However, I think Peter saying those words to Ananias and Sapphira both probably are very personal to him because he's actually been called Satan before by Jesus. So remember, there was one time where Jesus is talking about his soon, uh, you know, death, burial, resurrection, uh, his crucifixion, Mark 8, 32. As Jesus talked about this openly with his disciples, Peter took him aside and began to reprimand him for saying such things. Can you imagine Peter taking Jesus aside to reprimand him, but he does. That's Peter for you. Jesus turned around, looked at his disciples, and then reprimanded Peter. Get away from me, Satan, he said to Peter. You are seeing things merely from a human point of view, not from God's. So Peter knows firsthand how deceptive and convincing Satan can be. That's why Jesus calls him the father of lies. That's why Jesus says he was a murderer from the beginning. Satan's whole goal, again, steal, kill, destroy. He plants seeds of doubt. He will slightly twist the truth into a lie that's believable. And then he will give you all the justification that you need every step of the way in your sin. 
again, look at this in, in Acts 5. This, pro, this wasn't a, you know, overnight thing like, oh, we're just going to defraud the church of all this money. We're gonna do. It was a planned, coordinated effort on their part. Think about selling property, the process that takes, how many steps are involved. You've got to decide to sell. You've got to put it on the market. You're going, to you're going to receive multiple offers. You're probably going to negotiate. You're going to have to sign paperwork. And then they're going to give the money. Every step of the way was an opportunity for them to say, wait a second. Are we really doing this right now? Like, are we really going to try to cheat the church out of this money? Are we, are we going to try to pretend to be somebody that we're not? Are we really going to try to defraud these people that need this? Are we going to, is this what we're going to do? But they never stopped to consider what they were really doing. They just went through with the plan. Yep, it's the plan. It's the plan. It's the plan. Because they were hypocrites. They were, their, their heart was in the wrong place. Even when Peter confronted them, that was their kind of final chance to say, okay, you got us. We, yeah, this was a really bad idea. We should not have done this. It was just a portion of, of what we sold it for. And, you know, no one told us we had to give any of it or all of it. And we just, you know, want, we're, we were selfish and we were wrong and we were sinful. Even in that moment where Peter gives them a chance, they still hide their sin. They push it under the rug. They lie about the lie that they did. And that was the issue for them. And the issue for God was the future of the church depends on what happens in this moment. So uh, this came from a commentary I read this week, and it says this, the way that Ananias and Sapphira attempted to reach their goals was so dramatically opposed to the whole thrust of the gospel that to allow it to go unchallenged would have set the entire mission for the church off course. God knew that if this scheme is successful, it could ruin the church, the entire movement from here on out. It could be a problem. There's a ripple effect to their actions, which is why I think that the Holy Spirit revealed this to Peter. Peter had no other way of knowing what was going on except the Holy Spirit told him. And that's why I think he had the, the power to confront them. Not, not, well, you know, it's, it's, it's not that much money, and it's fine. It's not, you know, I'll talk, I'll talk to him later. No, he went and said, hey, you did this, and you, and you lied to the Holy Spirit. Because he knew there's too much in the balance here to let this thing just go. There's too much in the future of what this can be to let this sin just continue to grow. To illustrate that, let's get to really the right before and right after this story, Acts 4 and Acts 5, and look at these characteristics very quickly of the church right around the time of this story. So in Acts 4.32, it talks about there was great unity in the church right before this story happens. So God knows if this plan goes through and checks out and the check clears and nothing happens out of the ordinary, this can cause division really quick. Because if people start to find out or if word spreads that they were dishonest, then you're going to have people picking sides. Oh, they're wrong. Kick them out of the church. Or no, don't pick on them. You're not to judge them. How dare you? So he knows this one thing, this one scheme could have caused division in this crucial part of the church. Acts 4.32, generosity. We already looked at it with Barnabas. I think the Holy Spirit knew that if this just goes unchecked, it's going to create greed in some other people in the church. Man, that, that worked for them. They, look at how much attention they got because they did this. I'm going to keep back a portion of that. I'm saying I'm going to give all of it. Again, it's not about the money or the amount of money. It's about the heart. It's about that they said this is the full amount, knowing it wasn't. It was a scheme. And so God knows this cannot go if generosity is going to continue to be a hallmark of the church. Acts 4.33, it says that God's blessing was upon the church. So God's like, I, I can do one of two things. I can judge the 
specific people in this instance for their sin, or I can lift my blessing off the entire group. That was, a, that was a choice that God had here. I can judge them for their sin, or I can judge the whole group for their sin, which I hate. Like in school, when teachers do that, you got one kid that disrupts, and the whole class stays after. I'm like, why are you a teacher? Get out of here. You know, it's like, seriously, keep them after. I got things to do. I hate, anyway, that one's a big one to me. Um, so I can either... I can either deal with them or I got to deal with the whole thing and this operation is just out of whack. So that's why God, I think, did what he did in this way. And then after this event happens in Acts 5.14, we see that where there was continued belief in Jesus and salvation through Jesus. However, I do think that if the Holy Spirit had not confronted Ananias and Sapphira, instead of belief and salvation, there would have been doubt and skepticism. Because word's eventually going to leak out. Someone's going to say something about this plot. And when it does, then everyone's now labeled a hypocrite automatically, whether it's fair or not. Well, you associate with them, and they, they defrauded the church, and you kept them in, and you're still like, so we, we can't, the Holy Spirit knew we can't have this black mark on the church that's going to affect belief and salvation in this movement. And then healings and miracles continued after this event, whereas, again, like with the blessing being lifted, I think the Holy Spirit's power would have been lifted off the church in some measure had this not been taken care of and dealt with. So there's too much at risk, I think, for God to let this hypocrisy go because there is a ripple effect. And your life has a ripple effect. So let's get introspective for a second and ask ourselves, is the ripple effect of my life authentic and does it have positive effects? Or is there some hypocrisy creeping in that's going to cause negative ripple effects over time? A couple of things as we, as we close, a couple of just encouragements for us to, to leave with and think about this week. Number one, don't be a stumbling block to others' faith. If there's some hip hypocrisy in some area of your life or there's a sin that you're trying to cover up or trying to deny or trying to say, oh, it's not that bad, it's not that big of a deal, right? It is that bad, it is that big of a deal. Don't be a stumbling block to other people who then are gonna find out eventually your business that you're trying to hide or your hypocrisy that you're trying to cover up. It will eventually find itself out and then it will be a stumbling block to those around you. Ephesians 5, we're gonna read a section here from Ephesians 5 to bring this home. Paul starts out this way, don't be fooled by those who try to excuse these sins, for the anger of God will fall on all who disobey him. Don't participate in the things these people do. Don't be a stumbling block to those around you. Don't let hypocrisy creep in and grow. Don't let Satan's lies creep in and grow. Don't let that thing just keep going unchecked, unchecked, unchecked. It'll take over your life. It'll take over your heart. It'll take over everything you do if you're not careful. These were good people in Acts chapter 5. They're not evil people. They're not pagan people. They're church members who let this get too far for too long, did not let the Holy Spirit deal with them in the right way, and then he dealt with them once and for all. We don't want to get to that point where they were and have it just infest everything around us. And then here's the second part of this, and we'll continue on in Ephesians 5, is don't be a stumbling block, but also don't go along with a stumbling block in your life. It wasn't just Ananias. Sapphira was part of the plot. She was there. She was half of the scheme too. She said, yeah, let's do that. Maybe he had the idea, but she went along. Maybe she had the idea, and he went along. We don't know who was the brainchild of this terrible idea, but they both went along with this bad idea. Neither one of them, as far as we can tell, stood up and said, we're not doing this. This is dishonest. This is hypocritical. This is wrong. This will not lead to good things. They probably didn't know they were going to get killed on the spot, but nonetheless, they should have known something in there was wrong, and neither one of them did that. 
So we don't have to go along. Let's continue on Ephesians 5, verse 8. Paul says, For once you were full of darkness, but now you have light from the Lord. So live as people of light. For this light within you produces only what is good and right and true. Carefully determine what pleases the Lord. Then he says, take no part in the worthless deeds of evil and darkness. Don't go along with them. Instead, expose them. It is shameful even to talk about the things that ungodly people do in secret. But, as we saw in, in Acts 5, their evil intentions will be exposed when the light shines on them, for the light makes everything visible. This is why it is said, Awake, O sleeper, rise up from the dead, and Christ will give you light. Then he ends this section of Ephesians 5 this way, So be careful how you live. Don't live like fools, but like those who are wise. Make the most of every opportunity in these evil days. Don't act thoughtlessly, but understand what the Lord wants you to do. My life and your life have ripple effects. So follow Paul's advice. Be careful, be wise, be thoughtful. I don't want to be phony. I don't want to be fake, but I know it's so easy to fall into that. I know it's so easy to make my holiness about other people or my purity about the attention it will get me. I know it's easy to talk a good game and not really back it up with actions. I know that's easy to do. We're all susceptible and capable of doing that. Satan will come and lie to you. He will justify those decisions and those sins and those things. Don't let anybody know. You gotta hide that, confess that. You don't have to deal with that, it's not that bad. It is that bad. Don't let him lie to you in this way and have these negative ripple effects in your life. Two more scriptures very quickly as we close. How do we avoid this trap? How do we avoid this trap? Proverbs 4.23, guard your heart above all else for it determines the course of your life. Just be honest with yourself. Just say, self, this is a bad idea. Self, that's a sinful thing that you're doing. Stop it. Self, knock it off. Self, is, is that marriage material that we're living? It's not. Stop. Just be honest with yourself. Just take a few moments and be introspective just for a second. Check your motives, check your intent, check your heart. And then Psalm 139, 23 and 24 as we close. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you and lead me along the path of everlasting life. Don't just be honest with yourself, but be honest with God. Because as honest as I try to be, I'm still going to have some blind spots. I'm still going to have that little corner of that area that uh, I don't really want to deal with. God, I need you to deal with that with me. I need you to point, shine that light, search me, test me, point it out to me, and lead me in a different way forward. Let me just close by saying this. Again, this is not meant to be a guilt trip. This is not meant to be, you're so full of sin, but maybe you are, right? Like, I don't know that, but God knows that, and you know that, and I, and I know what's in my heart, what's in my life. I know what my motives are. I know what my intentions are, and so I'm, I'm saying, God, search me, like, I don't want to be phony. I don't want to be a hypocrite. I don't want to be a stumbling block. I don't want to have negative ripple effects. I want to be a genuine follower of Jesus, an imperfect one, yes, but one who says, God, let your light shine on my heart. Expose those dark areas that I don't want anybody else to know. Point out those things that are wrong or point out that sin that's growing or that's got a grip on my heart. Point out that false motive or that, that wrong intention that I have. Help me to become more like you. That's all that we're trying to do here is to not fall into this hypocrisy trap of Ananias and Sapphira, but to say, God, I want to be real. I want to be genuine. I want to be all yours to have that positive ripple effect and to advance your kingdom in powerful ways.
Let's pray. God, honestly, this has been a, a weird story, a strange story, but it really is a cautionary tale because we all have the same capability that Ananias and Sapphira had. It's so easy to become puffed up with pride or to become jealous of the attention someone else got for doing that, so I'm going to pretend to be a good person to get the attention that they got. It's so easy to want to attract that attention or to become fake, to become a poser, to become a hypocrite. It's not that difficult to fall into that trap. So may we do what they did not in this story. May we seek the Holy Spirit. May we be sensitive to the Holy Spirit. May we submit to your direction and to your correction. When you point out those things, help us to not resist or to, or to fight with you, or to say it's not that bad, or to justify. Help us just say, okay, God, yes, I, I'm, I'm a sinner in need of grace today. I, I'm your child, but I'm trying to grow more and more like you. Expose those things that are going to keep me from growing more like you. God, may we see those yellow spiritual lights. May we see those spiritual red lights before we crash May we be sensitive to what the Holy Spirit's trying to point out in our own hearts and lives. It's ugly. It's messy. We don't want to do it, but we need to do it, to become more like you, to have a net positive effect in our world and in those around us. God, simply may our desire and our goal and our ambition be to live for you, to love you first, to love you most, to serve you most and then through that ripple effect see others come to saving knowledge of your son jesus may our life of purity and holiness be a life that is authentic and then people will be attracted to the gospel through that help that to be our existence today help us as we leave this place today to have that introspective time this week for you to search us test us point out those things to us and lead us into your way of life everlasting that's my prayer today in Jesus' name, amen.